I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. In this episode, I have a conversation with two lawyers from Brown and Rudnick's Digital Commerce Group, Haley Lennon and Preston Burt. They fill us in on why it's good as a lawyer to be crypto literate, and we also explore the current regulatory landscape for crypto. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you can probably tell that I'm a big believer in blockchain technology, and I think it's really important for people in legal to have a working knowledge of blockchain and crypto concepts. The reason I believe this is because I think the technology is going to change the nature of many legal relationships, and not just financial relationships. We're already seeing it seep into intellectual property law, and also in the way organizations are set up and governed. Unfortunately, lately, for reasons both deserved and undeserved, crypto and other blockchain uses are getting a bad rap. Over the last several months, you've seen the implosion of several large crypto companies as a result of shady dealers and general bad business practices. And as a result, not surprisingly, governments worldwide are becoming more aggressive into efforts to get a handle on crypto companies. So to put things in perspective and hopefully shed some light on why blockchain technology is important regardless of the current esteem in which is held by some, I asked two top-notch crypto lawyers to come on the show. They are Haley Lennon and Preston Byrne, and they both practice with Brown and Rudnick's Digital Commerce Group. I wanted to talk to them not only about the current state of crypto regulation, on which they advise clients every day, but I also wanted to talk to them about why the technology is important and why lawyers in general should care about it. I like the way Preston sums it up. He points out that crypto is not a discipline like litigation or M&A work, but it's a market sector. And this market sector needs the same type of legal work that other businesses do, like they need IP lawyers, they need tax lawyers, and they need other kind of commercial lawyers. So as we will hear, if you're a lawyer who works in these areas, it's good to become as what Preston describes as crypto literate because there's a lot of clients out there with large investments behind them who need good advice. And as Preston tells us, sometimes they're just not getting it. Both Haley and Preston have deep roots in the crypto world from the early days and both took a similar path. They both started out at large law firms. They took a little detour and went in-house at crypto and blockchain companies, but they both ended up back in big law. As we will hear, both of them were excited to get back to law firms so they could get a holistic view of the entire industry a view they couldn't necessarily access when they were in-house because their jobs were solely to help with the company's specific legal needs. So I, as a young attorney, wanted to go in-house. And as a second-year attorney, I went in-house to a company called DollarX that did wholesale currency exchange along the Mexico border. And so I sort of unintentionally fell into this whole world of financial crime, anti-money laundering, um, OFAC, and the physical transportation of money. And that's when I first got really interested in Bitcoin because it solves a lot of the friction and problems of, you know, moving physical cash across borders. And so I was fortunate to kind of fall into in-house roles in the crypto space early on. I started at Silvergate Bank which is a major cryptocurrency bank that is no longer with us as of a few weeks ago. And from there, really sort of had a bird's eye view of the whole industry. And I loved that because as an attorney, I got to see the legal issues that all these different types of crypto companies were dealing with as they were coming to Silvergate to obtain a banking account. I then moved to Bitflyer and Coinbase. And, um, but Preston and I have now worked together for three years. We have a thriving crypto fintech uh, legal practice. And part of the reason I wanted to go back into the law firm world was to get that bird's eye view again that I had at Silvergate Bank. So I was in-house at Coinbase and it's an amazing experience, but you only see the issues Coinbase is dealing with. You know, you have one client, that's your client. 
at our legal practice, we see all of the trends that are happening in the crypto and blockchain areas. And um, I, I enjoy having that bird's eye view again. So you said Bitcoin was what got you interested into, into crypto. What was, what's the first time you heard about it? Like, how'd you get looking into it? I had never really seen the friction of cross-border payments and um, currency exchange and the transportation of physical currency. And in about 2012, I started hearing more about Bitcoin, mainly from my social circles. Someone I was dating at the time, some friends were talking about it and read the white paper. And it just, it just kind of spoke to me because, you know, I'm of the generation where the internet came into existence and email and say, right. things like that. And I've never seen a technology that sort of advances the way we move money. So that's when I first started hearing about it. And then when Silvergate came along, they sort of said, the same due diligence and anti-money laundering concerns that you have at a company like DollarX that is doing wholesale currency exchange along the Mexico border, that's a lot of the same compliance and legal questions we as a bank are going to need to answer. Um, and so there was just sort of this natural progression into that law having a lot of overlap with traditional finance. And Preston, what's your genesis block? How do you get into crypto world? There's actually also a dating component. <laughs> Haley, and I, Haley and I, of course, you know, we both we both uh, share our dating misadventures. With one um, so it, it actually started with a girl at a terrible, awful breakup in 2012, 28 years old. And so I decided after that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do one thing a year. I'm going to focus on, I was a banking lawyer. And I was like, I'm going to focus on one thing a year that isn't banking law because I know banking law isn't it. And then I'm going to see if that's my thing. So the first year out, I worked on housing policy and housing finance policy in England and Wales, wrote a bunch of papers and articles about it, got pretty well known in the UK housing policy scene. And after a year of that, I was like, okay, that, that's not my forever. What's next? And then the next thing was, what about this Bitcoin thing? And that was it. It just took. I trained and qualified at a firm called Berwin Leighton Paisner, now uh, Brian Cave. Then I moved to Norton Rose Fulbright. Uh, which is a big federal firm with 5,000 lawyers, still friends with everybody there. And one of my supervising partner, a fellow named Sean Murphy, was like, I was like a third-year associate. He's like, Preston, you're really, really good at all of the fun stuff. <laughs> and you're really rubbish at all of the, the stuff you're supposed to be doing as an associate. It co-founded the firm's cryptocurrency group and was pushing that. And that was in 2014. What I wound up doing was leaving to do a startup that was, we were one of the first, I think the first DAO in code, um, and also the first permission blockchain startup in 2014. Did that for a few years. And when you say DAO, distributed autonomous organization. Correct. The idea of a DAO is something that comes up a lot in sort of legal tech circles. It means distributed autonomous organization. The term actually was originated in the year 2013 with a guy named Dan Larimer and Charles Hoskinson. Uh, and, uh, and that would, they called it a distributed autonomous corporation. And the idea was that Bitcoin kind of runs itself as a money system. So why couldn't you have another automated software system running itself, uh, you have to do other things like a corporation or a lending operation or something like that. So they proposed that we built one of the first ones, uh, in 2014, it was May or June of 2014. And then, um, yeah. And then we got a VC ringing us up saying, Hey, why don't you turn this into a business? I'll give you a million dollars and you can start the company and double your salary. And it's like, yeah, well, it sounds good. See ya. And so, so left big law and did that for a few years, then came back, opened my own practice and just started building a book of crypto clients. So you're both now at Brown Rudnick. You've been there for what, a year or two, right? Yep. Oh, so yep. A little yep. under a year. And so 
Haley, as we talked about before, you're more regulatory focused. Preston, you're more business side, and debt. You work in some other other practice. So let's start with you, Haley. You run into me at a barbecue. I'm asking what type of law you do, what kind of clients you're looking for. Who are they? It's a funny question to get, actually, because there's this misconception by some people that crypto is like the wild, wild west or unregulated. But actually, the companies that are intending to do things the right way and would engage with a law firm like Ram Rudnick are actually super heavily regulated. So if you take an exchange, for example, we'll take Coinbase. I focus on state-level money transmitter licenses and the New York Bit license. New York was the first and only state to date that actually created its own crypto Bitcoin license that companies need to obtain to service New York customers. And so when I was in-house at Bitflyer, which was a Japanese exchange looking to expand into the U.S., I helped them get all those 50 state money transmitter licenses and the Bit license. That's sort of, that's the state level. On the federal level, these companies are dealing with FinCEN, which is under the Treasury that deals with anti-money laundering, OFAC that deals with terrorist sanctions. We have CFTC and SEC that both in their own ways regulate this space in the way that they define certain cryptocurrencies. So if you think of uh, Bitcoin as a commodity, that would be regulated by the CFTC. Uh, other cryptocurrencies, the SEC has said, are securities, so they regulate that. And so my day-to-day is helping companies on the front end manage obtaining licenses or complying with these federal regulators or companies who come to us later in their you know life cycle who didn't engage with us sooner and are now having issues in terms of enforcement actions by the SEC, CFTC, other um, sort of inquiries or examinations. So any state or federal regulation that touch on crypto or fintech is sort of my bread and butter. When I started at Silvergate in 2013, 2014, there were regulatory and news updates every month or two. Now we're starting to get these new breaking news and issues in the space daily, weekly. Um, it's you know trickling into the traditional banking system. And so my job's gotten a lot busier recent months. So Preston, you're at the same barbecue. I see you by the keg. I go over there. I say, hey, Haley told me you're an attorney. You're into crypto. And I tell you, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm creating the ticketing on the blockchain that's going to unseat Ticketmaster. Tell me, can you work with me? Like, who are you looking for? What are your clients? To, is it a fit? Most of the corporate legal issues that blockchain startups face are not unique, right? They're the same kind of issues that any other startup would face if it were starting up. I don't have, you know, a singularly unique perspective on that, but as someone who raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists and who did that before and frankly did so on kind of kind of bad terms, so you know, I understand what it's like to be on the wrong side of the deal. That for me is very valuable in advising these clients and helping to plan out the first couple of years of their existence. Ideally, a startup really shouldn't need too much contact with lawyers for the first 3 years, right? So you do formation, you'll do the equity comp, You'll do the employment agreements. You'll make sure that ever, all the IP is where it's supposed to be. And then once all that's done, really, they shouldn't be seeing you unless they get sued, which means they've done something wrong, or they're raising money, which means they've done something right, which is fantastic. So those are really the two situations, sort of at the early stage that we deal with. We also have later stage clients where my practice tends to revolve more around commercial contracts. So, And that is, I think, a little more crypto-specific because you have to deal with allocating certain risks 
that are crypto specific that might not arise in certain other contexts? Like what happens if you've got an NFT on this blockchain and then the chain forks, right? You've got two different versions of the chain. Where do you run it? And stuff like that. What happens if, you know, there's some catastrophic failure? What happens if, you know, there's key loss or destruction? So you have to allocate those kinds of risks. And it's, again, it's not terribly complicated. The blockchain piece of it is maybe three to 5% of the lawyering that needs to go in, but it's the three to 5% of the contract that's most likely to go wrong, given the subject matter, right? So it's, you're looking for those edge cases that, uh, that specifically relate to blockchain. We also do a lot of social media work, but that's a, another topic for, for later in the discussion. And so we have a lot of experience advising social media companies on things like law enforcement issues and, you know, subpoenas and global terrorism and, and things like, you know, botnets being operated by hostile threat actors from overseas. So that's a totally different arena of my practice, which just kind of evolved organically on its own. And there's some crypto overlap in that most tech companies, regardless of the sector that they're in, want to have some exposure to crypto of some kind. And it's social media, especially, right? Because there's talk of putting a social media platform on a blockchain. Social media is a really big bucket, right? It's a publishing service that allows people to connect with each other at scale. As a consequence, you can convey all kinds of information, you know, reviews about products, offers for sale, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's a logical next step that you'd want to integrate money into that application so that people can talk about without becoming a money transmitter, right? Obviously, you don't want the social media company stepping in and becoming a money transmitter, although we think companies like Twitter, for example, are going to do exactly that, right? So that's what right. Elon Musk wants to do, is he wants to turn Twitter into something like a WeChat. So he wants to turn it into sort of a, a Western WeChat, which has everything, right? You don't need to go anywhere else to do anything else. It's Amazon and PayPal and Twitter and Facebook and Gmail all wrapped into one. So yeah, crypto has a social media dimension because of that money component. Money is just you know, a communication about inputs, pricing inputs, essentially. And it's been a communication tool for a long time. So how we integrate that with other applications is a very, you know, very logical area for crypto startups to look at. So before we get into the regulatory nuts and bolts and the state of things with blockchain and crypto right now, why should lawyers care generally? Why should they care? about blockchain technology and, and crypto in general? Why should they care? Because there are clients who are printing huge amounts of money, getting huge amounts of investment, <laughs> uh, who need good advice, uh, and sometimes they're not getting it. So there still is room in the space for lawyers who are pragmatic but conservative to offer the right kind of advice and steer clients the right way. And it depends on where you are in your practice. If you've got a very successful, if you're a late-stage lawyer, you know, mid fifties, sixties, and you're, you've got a bigger bankruptcy practitioner. There's not a lot of reason for you to start pivoting into software licensing. Although there's certainly, you know, a benefit to being crypto literate. If you're going to go out and get bankruptcy work, if you're a young lawyer, right? Like first five years or in law school, there's just so much crypto work out there that, and it's pervasive, right? It's not, crypto is not a discipline in the sense that litigation or particular subsets of litigation or M&A or licensing are disciplines, right? Crypto is a market sector which has within it a requirement for every single legal discipline there is. You know, you need IP, you need litigation, you need employment, you need HR, you need taxation, all of it. So it's just a market segment where regardless of what specialism you decide to go into, there are clients to be had in crypto as long as you're literate in that marketplace. When we come back in just a second, Haley and Preston get into the current regulatory landscape of crypto. And they also tell us why that if regulators are not careful, they're going to push innovation away from American shores. 
I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We're going to get back to my conversation with Haley and Preston in just a second. But before we do, I wanted to let you know if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can catch us wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter, or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. All right, let's get back to my conversation with crypto lawyers Haley Lennon and Preston Byrne. They're just about to get into the current regulatory landscape of crypto and tell us why that if American regulators are not careful how they handle things, they're going to push innovative companies away from America. For many years, the crypto industry has sort of viewed the SEC as the aggressive regulator in the space. It goes back to very old case law coming from a Supreme Court case called the Howey, and the Howey test came from that case. And the Howey test really is a four-pronged test to determine if something is an investment contract or a security that should be registered as such uh, with the SEC and FINRA. And so because the SEC, you know, has is still using this old case and this old test, there is a lot of room sort of for factual interpretation based on many of the current sort of statements coming out from the SEC, they feel that most, if not all, cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin hit those four prongs of the Howey test and would be considered securities. They've also gone farther into, you know, doing enforcement actions against companies that do things like lending or a promise of promise of some sort of interest rate when there's a lending component. So the SEC has become, you know, a very big focal point in in the industry and is oftentimes the regulator that clients are coming to us focused on wanting to do things the right way, wanting to, um, you know, either avoid the U.S. or figure out ways to be in, in the U.S. And, and be on the right side of the law with the SEC. The confusing thing is what, like you said, there is friction between the CFTC and the SEC. Both regulators have ulterior reasons to want to have more jurisdiction over this space, including that they will be granted more budget and more staffing to oversee this industry. So you see the CFTC and the SEC sort of disagreeing about where that line is drawn in the sand for different cryptocurrency projects. And you even see conflicting opinions between those two. So You know, there was an action by the CFTC this week where they listed a few different cryptocurrencies as commodities. It's pretty clear that some of those the SEC views as securities. And we really haven't seen a lot of case law or, um, you know, sort of arguments made by these regulators justifying what something is. And that's the biggest sort of friction point. A good example of somewhere where we're seeing more traction is the SEC's uh, litigation against uh, Ripple based on their cryptocurrency XRP. From that, we're starting to see a lot more discovery and um, arguments made 
And, you know, it really should be on the regulator to justify their opinion if something is or is not something that needs to be registered with them. But it's um, it's a point of, of contention for many in the industry. It's, it's difficult for these companies to, to manage. You mentioned the CFTC this week came down with some action. Specifically, there's one against Binance yesterday here in Chicago. And then a couple of weeks ago, the SEC sent a Wells notice to Coinbase. But in the end, aren't both of these agencies asking for the same thing? Like, hey, if you're going to offer this product or service on the market, you need to follow our rules and jump through our hoops. Aren't they both saying that at some level with these actions? I think with the SEC, the situation's a little less clear than it is with the CFTC cases. The CFTC has broad jurisdiction to intervene in, in commodities products and commodities of virtually anything. In the case of the SEC, the problem is that they essentially deferred any enforcement and indeed made noises to the effect that crypto tokens, which were launched in the manner of an initial coin offering, much like many of the coins they're going after now, chiefly Ethereum, they said that was totally fine and legit. And that was Bill Hinman back in 2017 gave a big, you know, big speech out in San Francisco after Andreessen Horowitz blew a lot of smoke up as you know what, saying, listen, um, you know, listen, I don't think this is security because we have this sufficiently decentralized test, right? And so a lot of lawyers in the space looked at that and said, cool, green light, open season, let's go launch, uh, you know, that was the statement that launched a thousand ICOs. Because basically people said, well, it's going to be sufficiently decentralized so we can do an ICO. Explain that though, the sufficiently decentralized, because they yeah. said Bitcoin and Ethereum back in the day, they're, they're subject to the debate now, are sufficiently decentralized. So maybe they don't have to be regulated as much. So explain that. The test which is relevant here is the Howey test, which Haley mentioned earlier. And the Howey test is three and a half to four pieces, depending on how you count them. Basically, the Howey test says if there's a contract, a transaction, or scheme involving the investment of money into a common enterprise, with the expectation of profits arising from the efforts of a promoter or a third party, then that scheme is an investment contract. Uh, an investment contract is regulated as a security under Section 5 of the Securities Act of 1933. So basically, all of those components have to be present for something to be an investment contract. If you can knock one of those limbs out, then you have an argument that Howey no longer applies. So if there's no investment of money, right, then you don't have an investment contract under Howey. There's no common enterprise. You don't have an investment contract under Howey. If there's no expectation of profit, there's no investment contract under Howey. So the ICO boom back in 2017 took the tack that basically there was no expectation of profit because these things that people were buying were utility coins, which were intended for consumptive use rather than investment use, right? And so the SEC at the time was like, oh, maybe that works. Now, of course, they've taken somewhat of a different view. So with some of these with Ethereum, the argument was that even though Ethereum was launched via an ICO and at the point of its launch would have been an investment contract for the purposes of the 1933 Act, the transactions which were taking place later on, right, five, six, seven years later, were not investment contracts. And it was no longer appropriate to call Ether an investment contract because there were no longer those four elements uh, which are required for there to be an investment contract. So recently, the New York Attorney General, uh, Tish James, has brought a lawsuit against KuCoin in which it's alleged that Ether is, in fact, uh, an investment contract. And her argument is, so if you look at the investment of money, right, you, people are buying it, she argues that's your investment of money. Expectation of profits, why are they buying it? Because numbers go up. Common enterprise, why is that there? Well, 
let's look at what the Ethereum Foundation does. There's a foundation, right. it's centralized, it exists, it exercises a huge amount of influence over the direction of the protocol and its development, as evidenced by the fact that its developers steered the protocol from proof of work to proof of stake. And so they argued, listen, all that tells us that this thing is still an investment contract and the transactions are still transactions and investment contracts when they're being sold by the foundation, which means guess what? Statute hasn't run if they're continuing to dump tokens on the market. And Gary Gensler's made similar noises. So basically the SEC kind of punted on it back in 2016, 2017. They really only went after the most egregious frauds back then. And so as a result, tons of money and resources and effort went into the ICO space and the protocol, layer one protocol development space, because people took, you know, took their cues from the SEC and they said, well, listen, they're not enforcing against anyone, so we're just going to go in there anyway. Now, the SEC said, actually, we're going to enforce, we're going to go enforce against all of you, and we're going to do it as aggressively as possible, and we're going to enforce against the exchanges. And granted, back in 2017, I was one of the people, and Haley, I think, was somewhat skeptical as well, but we were, we were among the folks... I was really skeptical that ICOs yeah. were not securities. I said, listen, it's very, very likely that these things are securities. Just because the regulator isn't saying it doesn't mean it's not true. I got rinsed for it by particularly the Ethereum guys. There was a whole bunch of consensus lawyers who were very, very, very mean to me. And I very much enjoyed being able to tweet Tish James's lawsuit after I tag of the wall, the replies me like, hey, guys, five years later, I'm right. You may be rich and retired because you invested in me. And at <laughs> least I was right. So <laughs> I did see a couple of Reddits with, with comments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, yeah. I mean, the key is the way the SEC seems to be looking at things in the current climate is that this argument that tokens have utility may be true, but if the proceeds from the sale of the tokens are then being divvied up between for legal fees and marketing and building out the protocol and bringing more value in return to those tokens, you know, the SEC is very skeptical of that. But to Preston's point, with any regulators, there's a long tail of enforcement, right? So enforcement actions that become public may have been going on behind the scenes for years. And as a result, the SEC has gotten a reputation for regulating through enforcement action. Because right. instead of taking a proactive approach of saying this or that or telling exchanges how to become and, and approving applications for exchanges to become regulated broker dealers and ATSs, it feels as though sometimes the SEC is doing enforcement instead. And so I think that's the biggest struggling point for companies in the space, but also practicing attorneys, right? Because you we can't wave a magic wand and clear up everything for clients. And that's oftentimes frustrating conversations for us to have because we'd like to. Well, it started to even hit the judiciary, right? I mean, just uh, last week, week before, the judge in the Voyager case said, hey, yeah. SEC, you came in here, made all these allegations. You didn't show me anything. And I go look for precedent or any kind of, you know, guidance and it's not there. Do you think now the fact that judges are coming out and saying this stuff that will have any impact on regulators to maybe be more proactive rather than just enforcing? I feel like we're getting to some sort of friction point. I'm not sure how soon something will happen, but you know, the ability for there to be companies operating in the space comfortably here in the United States, I think is important. And I think there'll need to be some sort of congressional action or intervention to sort of get everything in order. I don't know when that'll happen. 
that's another question I have. Where do we go? Both of you, both Preston Haley, you both mentioned that the Howey test, that securities laws that we're talking about that govern the situation, like Howey's from the what, 1920s, early 1900s, these security regulations are 30s into the 40s. Like, when will that change? How will that change? What will be the impetus for that change to maybe update the regulations themselves? So the Securities Act was 33, um, you know, in response to the Great Depression and Franklin Delano Roosevelt deciding to take over all of American society with the government. But Howie's 46, I believe. Now, I'm not sure that Howie goes anywhere, at least not in the United States, because that would require an amendment to the Securities Act, which basically removes investment contracts from its scope, or an amendment which basically says that certain crypto products aren't covered by it. I don't think that's really feasible because that would just open, that would rip open a giant hole in the securities regime, which I don't think the U.S. government's prepared to give up. Right. What would be better, right, would be a disclosure regime which is separate or parallel to things like Reg CF and Reg A and Reg D, and which says, listen, let's call it, you know, Reg CR, right, regulation crypto which would have something like a light touch, but nonetheless onerous enough disclosure regime where if you're launching a crypto token, right, you have to make it very clear you get no rights, you have no dividends, you have no this, you have no that, this is how the thing works, here's the code, here's the white paper, and here's some actionable representations which you can bring again, here's how we're going to use the funds and all this other sort of stuff, rather like there is for Reg CF. And then not have the restrictions around one of the, the big problems is that if you treat crypto as a security, there are all these restrictions around trading crypto and where you can do it and how you can do it and with whom you can do it and when you can do it that kick in, which really are very incompatible with the idea of digitally native, you know, disintermediated, decentralized money. If you need to go onto a, a, an ATS or a securities exchange to trade crypto, you can't hold it directly on your wallet and you've got to be KYC'd for every transaction, that isn't really crypto. What that is, is that you're holding some coupons to crypto, which is held on an exchange, which is non-fungible with crypto everywhere else in the world. So essentially, they're trying to put a square peg into a round hole, and it's not going to work, so, which, is, uh, which is the problem. I agree with that. I don't think it's that we're going to sort of change the um, direction that we've been heading in. I've actually seen a trend in clients coming to us and being much more open to the idea of, okay, let's become registered. I think that companies eventually are going to have to decide if they leave the U.S. or become registered as a you know security offering, as a broker-dealer ATS. And those things are doable. They're a heavy lift. It's expensive and takes time and resources, but it's doable. But there has to be a interest from the SEC to actually approve these things and provide guidance when something doesn't fit into the process like it would as a traditional security. So I think that that's the biggest hurdle that we're still sort of facing. How much of a risk is America at to lose talent, to lose innovative companies because there's just lack of guidance? and It's already happening. There's no risk. It's just it, it's, yeah. it's happening. It's underway. There's tons of movement. And we're seeing this with multiple clients, right? So we obviously, we're not going to say which ones. We're not going to say how. But we're seeing a lot more business in Latin America. We're seeing a lot more business in Africa. Africa in particular. Yeah. You know, one in four human beings on the planet is going to be African in 2050. It's going to be one in three by 2100. Um, so essentially, right, the growth that you would expect 
from a novel technology, right, or the adoption of a novel technology is not going to come out of the United States and Europe. It's going to come out of places like Africa. So that's where we're seeing all the movement. And not to go too off topic, but I think part of that, I view it as an extremely negative thing for the United States. I think part of it is the United States, meanwhile, in the background is trying to figure out central bank digital currencies and how to fit the technology of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency into something that is still more centrally controlled. And so, you know, a lot of what's happened, in my opinion, over the last year, the Biden executive order came out tasking different regulatory agencies to go explore the risks and the benefits of cryptocurrency. The reports that have come out seem to focus only on the risks um, and only on sort of the negative narrative around cryptocurrency. And I I do think that that's a shame because in the United States, I think we value innovation um, and a lot of what happens in the traditional banking systems, like the rails are archaic. It takes, you know, three to five business days and all of this time and friction to move money and do cross-border payments. You know, there is a use case for Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies, and I wish that we in the United States, we're more open to that. But because this podcast is legally focused, what I'll say is that the amount of work there is to be done for clients who do want to stay in the United States, who do want to find their path forward here, and unfortunately, the companies that potentially did things the wrong way on the front end with other legal counsel and are now dealing with bankruptcies or litigation that is stemming from some of those things. There's a ton of work to be done. And the two things I think that the crypto industry is always looking for are more banking partners and more lawyers. Many lawyers are in-house. And um, for me, I don't think that I would enjoy being a lawyer if I hadn't found this specific area. It's something that makes me excited every day to work on. And that's great. We need lawyers like you guys. What, lawyers who actually like their jobs? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You found ourselves. But it also leads to something else. You you touched on it here. Isn't it incumbent at some level for the crypto industry, for the blockchain industry, to educate more and to the extent they can all the time? Because I mean, at the top levels of government, there are people that you can just tell when they speak and talk about crypto and blockchain, they have a profound misunderstanding of the technology. So how do we address that? How do you address the education piece? You don't. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little controversial about that. I don't think you make them. Un- I don't think you tell them to understand. I don't think you get them to learn. I think you force them to understand. Uh, and the way that you do that is by building better decentralized tools that can ignore their controls and ignore their ramps and ignore everything in a you know, decentralized way so that you're not engaged in regulated activity, your users aren't engaged in regulated activity, but the protocol continues to function and it will ignore you know, any force that the regulator throws at it. That's a very, very difficult, if you're going through the eye of the needle there, it's very, very difficult to thread that. So it's very tough to do. And a lot of people don't do it correctly, right? So they'll say, well, we want to have this decentralized app, but we also want to have a shitcoin, pardon my French, tacked onto the back where we issue ourselves 90% of the supply, right? You're not doing it decentralized then. So if you're doing it Satoshi style, right, or there's some layer two companies which are building things which they don't control or contributing code to things that they don't control, I think that those tools will wind up simply by force of adoption 
the laws will change and wrap themselves around them because people will be forced to understand. If, if it turns out that to do business in Africa, you need to have access to the unfettered access to the Lightning Network, guess what? People are going to figure out a way to get unfettered access to the Lightning Network and the politicians are going to follow. So I'm not a big proponent in getting politicians to write rules. Uh, I'm a very big proponent in forcing them to acknowledge that the rules are irrelevant. The only thing I would add to that is I think there's sort of two different groups in the crypto industry that propel the industry forward. And one is the builders, right? The people that keep their head down and are working with attorneys and different company people to, to weave that needle and to find that right balance. Engagement in DC for me is another aspect. I agree with Preston. You can't force someone to understand or appreciate this technology. I would actually say that a lot of the government officials or regulators that seem to not really get it, they do get it. They just have ulterior motives that are at play behind the scene. Agreed, but but some, not naming names, I feel like some of them really don't. Yeah. Really no, I, don't. I, I agree. The motive, the motive's there. Well, the that. problem yeah. is, is that, and it, it's even a problem as, you know, going back to your, if I walked up to you at a barbecue, half the time I don't immediately tell people what I do because... What comes to mind for regulators, government, and people who don't know anything about this industry is only those headline news. The big right. scams, the big things that blow up, even the messaging about Bitcoin not being energy efficient. Yeah. These like <laughs> narratives around it only being used by criminals, being anonymous, being all those things are what make the headline news, not the great use cases of other countries and the things that are being built in the United States the right way and for the right reasons. Um, and so that's hard, right? Because when regulators have those things to point to, there's a lot of other things they could be looking at. So educating or explaining those aspects, I think, can have some value. One of the terrible things about being a lawyer in private practice is that you <laughs> talk about any of the cool stuff you see. Yeah. Uh, Haley referred to it as the bird's eye view. A friend of mine who went in-house, very, very well-known crypto lawyer who went in-house, uh, I, I saw him in Dubai a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, so how's private practice? I was like, good. And he's like, you know what? I, I kind of miss it. I was like, well, what do you miss? He said, I miss the God's eye view, right? <laughs> no bird's eye, but God's eye, because why? That's You're another seeing, way to say it. <laughs> you get to see what's going on across 70, 80, 90 different companies but you're seeing it three years ahead of schedule, right? Yeah. Before anybody knows about it. When a company's raising its Series A and it's got 5,000 users, right? It's got so many doublings ahead of it before it's going to become part of the public consciousness. And so one thing that we get to see is we get to see a lot of early movement, right? From, you know, the United States to Africa, the United States to Latin America, development of layer two protocols that nobody uses or has heard of, right? So all that kind of stuff is absolutely amazing. And it's a huge cause for optimism. But of course, the rest of the world, they're just looking, all they've heard about is FTX, right? And, Vo right. and Celsius and Three Arrows. And so those are the stories which get the headlines. But like FTX went down. It was pretty shocking for me when it went down because SBF was so prominent. But ultimately, like it really not a particularly interesting company from a technological perspective. It was just you know, just another exchange, just like every other exchange. Yep. It just happened to be run by an American. And you also see the legal trends. So you see the confidential investigations that the SEC is doing years before it turns into an enforcement action or a settlement. Um, and it allows us to give, without sharing client confidence, it, it gives us the ability to adapt our 
legal advice for future clients um, by saying, this is not an area you want to get into. How how can we sort of change the offering in a way that is more in line with your goals to do things the right way and stay out of, you know, the bullseye of these regulators? Because there's different ways to do that. So I think that that's one of the interesting and exciting things our practice group does. Stephen Pally leads our practice group and to be able to, all three of us, to be on a call with a client and be able to help them manage what they're trying to do has been really exciting. And like Preston said, some of our clients start off small and seeing these companies grow with us in part because of the legal advice and help we're able to provide is really rewarding to see see companies doing things the right way. It also means to be able to send my dog to college when they get bigger. Yeah, that's the <laughs> important thing. <laughs> that is important. Well, cool, Haley Preston. I really appreciate your time. I know you guys are really active on Twitter, so if people want to find you there, where do they go? And also, if they want to learn more about your individual practices, where do you want them to go? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Haley Lennon BTC H A I L E Y L E N N O N B T C. And Brown Rudnick, our information and bios are on the website. We also have a good overview of our digital commerce practice group there. We would be happy to connect with any listeners. Yeah, and on Twitter, I'm Preston J. Byrne. That's Byrne, Bravo, Yankee, Romeo, November, Echo. And uh, if you want to connect with me there, I'm happy to chat. If you tweet marmot, pictures of marmots at me, uh, that's <laughs> the easiest way to get my attention and get a follow. So if you want me to follow you, just like reply to one of my tweets with a picture of a marmot on it. And uh, that's a guaranteed follow. It's so. how we became friends. So, Indeed. <laughs> okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.